Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I'm really excited and interested in talking to Jim Thorne, James Thorne, Chief Strategist, Chief Market Strategist for Wellington Altus Wealth. He's been right on in the market, and this is a business we're getting it right. He was back with us at the World Outlook Conference, and bottom line, he says, look for softness in the market, then look for a big rally led by tech, and he gave us the reasons. I'm going to get an update from him. There's that, and what about the interest rate environment? He has a specific date when he thinks, finally, the interest rates are going to turn around. He hasn't agreed with all this talk of, hey, they're going to, they're going to go down, it's going to reverse. No, he's got a date, and he's got a reason. Anyways, much more coming with with him. Joey Temprilli is going to be with me about all the stuff that you're seeing right now in the news or hearing uh, in the news about the SEC going after Coinbase, going after Binance. But what does that have to do with uh, Bitcoin? Well, that's what we're going to explore. And because there's some big news on that front. I mean, you've got BlackRock sort of endorsing Bitcoin this week after Larry Fink had just crapped all over it for the last several years. I'll get more into that with him. And I'm going to ask Jim Thorne about that too. I've got Ozzy. He's got tons of stuff to go with me about what's going on in the current real estate market. So many conflicting trends going on at this moment. Victor Dare has been looking at the market. He was happy. He, he was playing the market to go down. Hey, you know what? He was right. But remember, he's a short-term trader. Rob Levy's going to be with me talking about the interest rate environment when you've got the Federal Reserve saying, hey, look for another couple of jumps in interest rates before the year end. Obviously, lots to talk about. But first, let me just ask you a quick question, easy one. We got what? Hundreds of thousands of high school students have just graduated. That's June's the month. And if you had to guess, how many do you think of those students understand that they are already on the hook for $30,000 in federal debt before they get into the real work world? $30,000 that was run up without their consent, but they're liable for it. You can also throw in, by the way, an average around 20000 per province for provincial debt. And yeah, they're going to be paying, well, it's hundreds of billions of dollars for public sector pension benefits that have been promised, but not enough money has been set aside. My bet is that none of these students know this. But we're talking about a financial anchor tied around their legs before they even enter the adult work world. For as long as they work, or as long as they live, actually, a piece of their paycheck is going to go towards servicing that government debt. As I said, I wouldn't bet even one graduating student understands that. Or for that matter, I mean that 25 to 30 years for, you know, on, as they get in the work world, well, their taxes are going to go and pay more for health care for older Canadians than their own. And you know, the more I think about it, the more detrimental I think it is to graduate students from our public school system after 12 years without a working understanding of economics and finance including the relationship between government policy and issues like inflation or the cost of living or affordable housing. No matter what they choose to do in their adult lives, personal finance issues, economics, government policy is going to have a major impact on them, whether it's in job opportunities, just the cost of living, or if they're looking for a place to live or rent, they're going to have a major impact. What's strange, though, is that surveys consistently show that a large majority of respondents wish they had learned about this stuff earlier and wish their kids were exposed to this at an early age. But before I go further, let me acknowledge the people in the educational establishment who say, hey, that's all well and good, but what are you going to take out of the curriculum to make room? Well, my response is that 
They didn't seem to have any trouble integrating climate change and other aspects of the progressive subject du jour. But I want you to think about this. The cost-benefit analysis of failing to integrate these subjects like finance, like economics, personal issues, it doesn't add up. I mean, what is the educational establishment afraid of? Other than a well-educated public, I guess, is more likely to challenge the status quo, more able to see through the political spin and incompetence of government, or fallacies like we can offer unlimited access to health care with limited funding. I mean, there's a huge cost for both individuals on a, and on a societal level to an uneducated public on such fundamental issues like the basics of economics and finance, and along with those practical working knowledge or practical issues in finance, or things like even how to get a job, find the right mortgage. Now, I do appreciate, by the way, that some dedicated teachers do talk about that, but they're the exception. And there are some elective programs that prepare students for blue-collar jobs. But again, that's the exception. But my question's a bigger one. What's the benefit of not teaching our children the basics of how the economy works, for example? How are children better off not knowing the ins and outs of getting a job or how to choose a mortgage or the fundamentals of investing or the impact of monetary and fiscal policy? Sometimes that seems to be a mystery to all but a few politicians. That's it. Most of them don't have a clue. Think of a mindset that says solutions to issues like poverty, income inequality, or arming them with the information that can help them protect their own standard of living, all of which have roots, of course, in economics and finance. But they're saying that solutions are more likely to be found by keeping the younger generation in ignorance. I appreciate this is a complex subject, but my point, it's not even on the agenda. You hear that? It's not even being discussed. Something that will have a major impact on the quality of their lives, for all their lives, with negative consequences for the country as a whole. You know what? I got to say, but P.S., I don't think for a moment this is going to change. And no one benefits more than the status quo. No one suffers more than the students who come from a family background who isn't able to fill the void. As I say, I don't know what they're thinking, but it sure isn't to the benefit of the students. I'm thinking back to the first week of February when we were doing the World Outlook Conference. And of course, there's a lot of doom and gloom at that point. We're still waiting on the recession that was supposed to come. But although I can give you way, way too many areas in the actual economy that is certainly slowed down and certainly shown those signs. So we're talking really about an official announcement of recession. But the bottom line, it was negative there. But we had uh, the chief strategist for Wellington Altus Wealth. We've got James Thorne here. And man, he was the only guy who got it dead right. He said, look for this correction. But then he said, look for a huge move in tech. Isn't that exactly what we've experienced here? That's why I'm so pleased to get Jim back on with me here. Jim, as I say, nothing like a good call. <laughs> well, you've well, made you done for me lately, right? Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> the worst thing about this business. But no, I mean, you've made a lot of money because you were right on it. You didn't wait. You didn't, wasn't a momentum trade. It was an understanding of what you saw coming. So I want to focus on a few of those things because you, you nailed it. We've all heard about artificial intelligence now. We've heard about chat GPT. You talked about it back then, but tell us the implications and why you thought it was going to be so profound. Uh, you, know, you, you know, Mike, when you go back and look at history, technology hangs around for a long period of time, and then there's an event. 
and, I, and, and, and whatever that event is, there's something that happens that uh, gets society excited about it. It's that butterfly effect. And, you know, sure. And so, so, so AI has been around forever. Yeah. And so when chat GPT hit and you could just see people going, oh, this is the moment. This is the moment where we've had decades of research, right? People working on it. And now we just, the, the rate of absorption in society is going to happen at an exponential pace. Yeah, right. and that's certainly and it, been the case. I mean, that is the, the adoption rate has been starting. shocking. It's just yeah. starting, and and my re- my 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 reference point goes back to the nineties, right? With the advent of the internet, people poo pooing emails, right? Uh, Paul Krugman saying the fax machine is more important than the internet. Oh, yeah. Personal computers, nobody is going to want to do have a mobile phone. Right. So the great thing about you and me, old guys, Mike, we've lived this a couple of times. Right. So I was just hackering back on my on my experience. And then then the last thing I think is is with the call was is even before covid, we had a very tight labor market, but it was non-inflationary. Right. And, you know, we have demographics. We have the millennials growing and the baby boomers uh, um, retiring. And typically in periods of time where you have a secular or secular tightness in the labor market, you get an acceleration in the adoption of capital for labor. So it was ripe. We were ripe for an event like this. And the last thing I would say to you in October is everybody was planning for the end of the world. And the end of the world very rarely happens. Well, it's you, as you look forward, so it's one thing you, you got on the move early, you looked at that move, but now have we gone too far or even on the short term? I mean, you mentioned, of course, yeah, I remember also uh, 2000 and the dot-com bubble. Now, I don't see the same signs though because in the dot-com bubble, to bring everyone up to speed, if I had a mining company, I'd just stuck the dot-com on the end of it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, I, I do remember anybody in the speculative market, in Vancouver, et cetera, and the pink sheets down in the States, they just pretended they were internet companies and people didn't really have a clear grasp of the internet at that point. I haven't seen that. I mean, obviously we've seen companies like NVIDIA go crazy here, but we haven't seen it spill over into that, to that degree. No, I, the, the difference between now and the nineties is, is today big cap tech has embraced this technology early on. So I, I would expect, in a year, we, the bear market low is October. So typically what's going to happen now is just let's use behavioral finance in the sense that um, you've got managers that are significantly behind their benchmark. Mm-hmm. Yes. So fundamentals really don't matter this year. So I would expect the market to go higher into the end of the year. I think it, really what I'm starting to think about right now is what does 24 look like? And it really comes down to what does the Fed and the Bank of Canada do? Right. If the Fed just stands back and allows inflation to come down. And I've always been of the view that interest rates do not bring inflation down when they're caused by the supply side. The fact I will give you is Japan's inflation is coming down as fast as Canada and the United States. They did not raise rates. 
Mm-hmm. And raising interest rates constrains supply. They're doing absolutely the wrong thing at the wrong time. If they just stop so not, no damage happens, then demographics say we have a strong secular bull market into the end of the decade. And so how does that, how does that play out is the big question. So big companies actually driving and adopting the AI is really a big difference, I guess, uh, compared to 2000 when it was all the small ones. So that, that's got to have, you know, really a profound difference. It'll be the other way when adoption comes. Yes. So we don't, the 90s was all about it, the introduction of the internet. And now we are just starting to get different variations of the internet in our lives. So, so AI, blockchain, They've been around for a while. And so we think that we're in a period of time of rapid adoption, Mm -hmm. good innovation. And so we would expect companies that embrace it will will, will do great. We think technology is the place to be. And so we think that as long as the central bankers, and that's a big if, don't fly the plane into the side of the mountain, don't create a severe recession, then we are going to have a really nice secular bull market into the end of the decade. I am worried, though, and I'm seeing a lot of recessionary numbers uh, coming out. They say Jerome Powell again this week said, you know, we're going to bump him up another couple of times. Sounds about right, I think were his words and some of the other governors. Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, it remains to be seen if uh, they, I mean, they didn't have this, let's face it, they got inflation wrong. October 220, they're saying, we've got to get prices up, literally. You know, then we get to, it's just transitory, no big deal. And then we get to, holy smokes. And I think they're surprised at this point that it hasn't come down. Yes, but let's go back to the basic question that when we first met is there is too much debt globally to be able to absorb high interest rates. So the banking crisis in the United States has not been solved. No. Okay. So they need to, I'm going to be a little bit esoteric, uninvert the yield curve and get the yield curve steep. They've got to start cutting rates by March of next year. Okay. That's basic math. I, I go from the view is that they are, uh, and, and this might be controversial, but I think Tiff Macklin and Jerome Powell are very cerebral. They're smart people. And I think that they're dealing with a very difficult situation in the sense that they're unwilling, like Paul Volcker in the 1980s, to go after the governments and say that deficit spending is inflationary. They are unwilling to go on the record and say it. But basically what they've got is we're dealing with, we're dealing with the MMTers that are in control yes. of the purse strings in Ottawa and in Washington. And so they're between a rock and a hard place. So we would expect though, given the debt ceiling that was uh, agreement that was signed, that, you know, an inflation coming down, that they, they will not have to raise rates. And I would suggest to you that the inflation that we're going to start to see is going to be dramatically to the downside. And so, Mike, the proof in the pudding is going to be in the next couple of months on how Mr. Powell reacts to a rapid decline in inflation. And I think he and the Fed knows what they're doing. I think it's very frustrating. Same with the Bank of Canada. I think it's very frustrating because the data is, they they know they're the preponderance of the data suggests that there is a rapid decline in inflation, okay? And they're trying to make, you know, type, walk that tightrope yep. and deal with, with inflationary pressures that are coming from Ottawa and Washington, D.C. So they're doing the best they can. I could easily sit here for, for hours and just 
complain about them. I've been very hard on them. But let, let me just be frank about Jerome Powell is, you know, he did what he needed to do to to make sure that the banking crisis did not spread in the United yes. States. But he hasn't solved it. So it's really simple. We've got 144 per 140% debt to GDP in the United States public. We've got almost 190% personal debt to disposable income in Canada, highest in G7, if not the OECD. We cannot survive on high interest rates. So they can say what they want. The math just doesn't play out. And an important point that you made is that, you know, the time is clicking for them because we have this overwhelming debt issue. It's going to get worse. I look at the commercial uh, office buildings and the degree to which they had loans coming due and now we're in sort of uh, some level of default. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a story that's got a long way to run. They really can't afford to have these rates up for much longer. And as you say, you're looking for some change at least by the first quarter of next year. They, they, they literally can't afford it. Right. The loans that they are giving the banks to, to basically allow them to survive and not sell those bonds that are portion, a part of their tier one capital that's trading way underwater because they mm -hmm. bought those bonds in 2021 when interest rates were at zero. Those loans come due in March. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, everybody's sitting here saying higher for longer. These guys two years ago said that interest rates were yeah. going to be low forever. Why should we? And, and, and what Mr. Powell said in Washington this week was we're committed to the 2% level and inflation is above 2%, according to the bank, uh, sorry, to Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's what he should say. Yeah, it's, yeah, of course. But that's not uber bearish. But the yeah. media, the media sits there and goes, you know, so so I, I am what I'm hoping for. And I think this is true, is that as long as the data comes in the way that I think it's going to come in. Right. If you use real time. So let me just get CarMax came out and reported today. All right. Seven percent decline in used car prices. Right. Yeah. That's not what. Stats can says, and that's not what the bank, or sorry, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. If you look at real time data and you price in also real time real estate data, inflation is 2.4%. Yeah. And well, that will come through. Now, how they react to that number over the next coming months will be very telling, very telling. I want to come back to the AI revolution because anytime you've had this huge boost, I mean, as a positive now, because, you know, you got the government stuff on one side, but then you've got, you know, this prospect of dramatically increased productivity, you know, and efficiency and all of these things that would be an extreme positive, as you say, they can derail it short term, but longer term, they're, you know, they're, they have no reason to derail it. I mean, they need economic growth for the very reasons we're suggesting. I mean, their own debt problems don't get sustained with low growth. I mean, they get helped with higher growth. So that's back to the AI. That, that seems to be the best uh, sort of the rose in this garden at this point. Yes. Back in 2000, I mean, how many times in my career have I heard about labor shortages and that yeah. we aren't going to adjust? I've heard this. This is Michael. You and I have. This is our fourth time taking grade ten Canadian history. Okay, can we get this one right? I'm yeah. teasing you, but it's like yeah. I've heard this. So for old guys like me, I've heard this so many times. And the first time I heard it, I believed it. 
right? Yep. So, did so I. we're going to adjust. We're going to innovate. People who think that they're lazy and people that are not productive, we have negative productivity. That's a couple of things. People. So what does that do? That substitutes, that accelerates capital for labor. And it's also suggesting that government spending is inflationary. I mean, yep. these are just basic tenants that will and need to get solved. Raising rates doesn't do anything for this. And so what I would suggest is that we're going to see a dramatic decline in inflation coming through the summer. And then the key for me will be Jackson Hole. And what I'm expecting Chair Powell to say then is that we are sufficiently restrictive. Okay. Now yep. think about this, right? If the two year, it's about real rates. If, if the overnight rate in the United States, the Fed fund rate is 5%. And I'm talking to you about real inflation, real time inflation is at two and a half percent. That means that overnight real rates, right? You take into consider yep. inflation, two and a half percent. That is the tightest that we've seen in decades. Falling inflation tightens credit standards, and they know that. Yeah. They're just biding time. Now, let's be fair, Mike. If inflation comes down, and they still keep doing the same song and dance that they don't see it coming down, yeah. then all bets are off, okay? All bets are off. Uh, you know, and you'll forgive me for not having total faith in them, <laughs> given their track record. Uh, when you look at the markets right now, though, and if you looked at something like the AI move, NVIDIA, and, and you know the, the, the well-publicized dominance of around eight or nine stocks moving the market, but now we're getting some follow-through, or we've had had some follow-through. Um, if, what are your advice to the investors? I mean, again, if they're traders, I, and this is why I always make that distinction, are you long-term or you short-term? Short-term, you've got to allow for changes in the market. And short, uh, But if I was a longer-term investor, what kind of things am I looking at? I think, okay, so first I would say is uh, be very careful of what you hear on TV. That's the first thing, right? The, the cu cumulative advanced decline line for the S&P 500 is making a new, new high. Yeah. So it's just not five stocks or 10 stocks. Right? Okay, great. That's first. Two is look at secular. If I was worried about a recession, then home, home building stocks in the United States would be getting hammered. They're at all time highs. Semiconductors are at all high, times high. Are there areas that are very challenged? Of course there is. So what, what I am suggesting is that you need to sit back and look at the structural secular themes that are going to be going mm -hmm. forward and position your portfolios accordingly. So this is not going, you know, and the economy adjusts, right? Right. So what, 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 what do I say by that? Millennials are going to be buying homes, right? So you've got millennials are in the home ownership phase of their life, just like the boomers were in the nineties. And we've got mass migration in the United States away from democratic States to Republican run States. Yep. So, if you look at the economy in, let's say, Texas or Arizona or the South, it's completely different than what's going on in New York and California. Flyover country is fine. OK. Yeah. And so what I would suggest you do is think about a couple of things. Excessive levels of debt, slow growth. One. Technology is deflationary. Two. They have to get rates down 
three. So you're in a slow growth environment with declining inflation and declining interest rates. Build your portfolio accordingly. And that's sort of the long-term view. Yeah. So you sit there and say, you know, is it is NVIDIA, I'll just pick NVIDIA, is it over? No. NVIDIA is going to be the go-to stock like Cisco was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, or and Microsoft's going to be great. Are there, are there going to be trades? Are they going to come back and correct? Are they going to be overbought? Sure. Uh, but I, I, I'm not a good trader. Right. So for thematically, I sit there and go, it's going to be very interesting. Now, what we haven't touched on, which I think is very interesting, is the fact that BlackRock and Wall Street are starting to embrace crypto and blockchain. And if they do, that will be a massive profit center for them. And if they do, that will mean that their earnings will grow and they will evolve. And so I am looking at the banks right now. Aside from not right now, but thinking, you know, when BlackRock and Fidelity and Deutsche Bank, when Wall Street starts to embrace crypto and blockchain, that is a way for them to think about a renaissance and a rebirth. And if you start getting financials participating, then this is going to be a very strong bull run into the end of the decade. Fascinating. And you've done a beautiful setup for Joey Tramprilli is going to be with me talking Canadian Bitcoiner, but talking about the latest SEC on Coinbase, SEC on crypto, but also Larry Fink, all of a sudden calling it a fraud and now saying, let's do an ETF, <laughs> you know, with BlackRock. I, your point is just uh, beautifully made and, and incredibly important. Jim, I always appreciate getting a chance to chat with you. Uh, you give me about 73 things to think of right now, all valuable. And as I say, pat in the back for getting this environment right. Uh, Great stuff. Many thanks. Thanks, guys. Take care. Have a great weekend. Time now for the quote of the week. And it's straightforward. And it comes from Oscar Wilde in quotes. The bureaucracy is expanding to meet the needs of the expanding bureaucracy. I'm going to repeat that. The bureaucracy is expanding to meet the needs of the expanding bureaucracy. In other words, government for the sake of government. Kind of reminds me of the question posed by Yves Giroux, parliamentary budget officer, when I interviewed him back in March, after his office had published a new report that found that the public service had expanded by the equivalent of 31,227 full-time employees in just two years between April 2020 and March 2022 with the employee compensation growing by over 30%. It was $46 billion, then $61 billion. With the average compensation, this is an incredible number, for the equivalent of a full-time employee, this is the average compensation rising by 6.6%, but it went from 117000 in 2019-20 to 125000 2021-22. And that's before, of course, we've now had a recent wage and benefit increase that was negotiated in May. But the question Mr. Giroux asked is, what did you get for the increased spending for the increased number of people? (laughs) I'm laughing, thinking obviously not more timely service or more efficient spending in a wide variety of government areas. But specifically, what did you get? Personally, I got absolutely nothing. But the question is, what about you? Or was it just more government for the sake of more government? 
Or, as Oscar Wilde said, bureaucracy is expanding to meet the needs of the expanding bureaucracy. You may have noticed I have a lot of things happening in the sort of crypto space. And I know it's just a broad definition, but Bitcoin, crypto, all of that stuff, I think, too often gets meshed. I'm going to clear some of that up today. And I've asked our go-to guy, Joey Temprilli. He's the Canadian Bitcoiner. They have a podcast. It's terrific. But dealing with this kind of issue. Joey, I appreciate you finding time for us, first of all. It is much appreciated. But man, when I see the SEC filing against Coinbase, when I see them filing against Binance, after a lot of warnings about that, by the way, I know that a lot of people, first of all, confuse it with, what's that mean for Bitcoin? Yeah, it's interesting. Thanks for, for having me, Mike. I'm happy to report that I'm taking a break from staging my home for sale for your listeners who have gone through this <laughs> process. You know, I'm, I'm in the... Uh, I'm in the fake fruit is on the counter stage, so I, I got to be pretty close to done, I'm pretty sure. But uh, yeah, Mike, to your point, man, tons going on in, uh, in crypto. The SEC obviously on a bit of a rampage. Uh, Gary, and, Gary and friends there uh, doing what they can to, I think, send shockwaves through the crypto space. And I'm happy to uh, talk to you and your listeners about that today. Well, I've always been, uh, you know, my reluctance has been my, it's really interesting, uh, like a lot of the attraction for people involved in, in Bitcoin, for example, and these are, you know, services around it, but Bitcoin was a distrust of government, distrust of government money, you know, massive printing up of money at some point, you know, devalues it. And my reluctance has always been also a distrust of government because I didn't believe they could let this stuff go unregulated. They want their hands in everything and it doesn't matter where we are. And sometimes for very good reason, although they blew it with FTX, but you know, they should have been in there. So, I mean, it's all in that melange. So maybe just start, I want to start something very straightforward. Is Bitcoin like other cryptos? Is it like Coinbase? Does it have implications for Bitcoin? It. It doesn't really, and we're seeing that in the price of Bitcoin in the last few days. Mm -hmm. I think we're we're in the middle. We're recording on Friday the twenty third. There's you know a, another thousand dollar day in Bitcoin right now. So you got three of these monster green candles in a row. You know, Mike, maybe maybe the best place to start. You know, as far as distrust in government and the Coinbase suit, let's let's back up two weeks or, or so ago. So or even even further potentially. So I think the last time you and I spoke was a little bit before the SEC issued a Wells notice to Coinbase, uh, the, mm -hmm. the warning that a suit is coming down the pipeline. Okay. So what does Coinbase do? Well, what they do is they get online and there's a, you know, a number of Twitter spaces and tweets. You know, it seems like from the hip of the CEO, Brian Armstrong, uh, talking about how they've asked for clarity. They're not getting it, blah, blah, blah. We've met with the SEC many times in the past year. Okay, so that's fine. Two weeks ago or so, the suit hits. And what does it allege? Um, in the Coinbase case, we can talk about Binance separately, but in, in the case of Coinbase, it alleges basically two things. You're trading on registered securities. Okay, we've heard this before. And that the staking service, this idea that you can park a little bit of your uh, token al uh, allocation with Coinbase and earn a yield is also a security. Okay, great. And some, some say, Mike, that, you know, in defense of Coinbase, they're publicly traded. This was a company that went, you know, went to market, I think, two years ago or so during a, a much ballyhooed IPO. And these sort of people who want to go to Coinbase's defense will say, look, they were allowed to go public. The SEC looked at their books. They looked at their filing. And I would just point out that the S1 filing that Coinbase you know, put through the process actually noted that if they are trafficking securities, it's a significant risk to their business and their bottom line. So it's not like Coinbase didn't know. What they didn't know is when they were going to be told. And, you know, Armstrong, the CEO, he's, he's been on the offensive for the last two weeks, but I, I want to point to one particular piece of media that he did with the Wall Street Journal, a sit-down interview where 
Mike, I have to be honest. I haven't seen pitches this soft since I was playing slow pitch as a kid. And he still had problems with some of the questions. Um, the, the interviewer from, from WSJ asked him, you know, Coinbase has this venture investing arm of the business. Can you confidently tell me that Coinbase is not investing in tokens and then, and then telling them to list on the platform? Or even vice versa. Are you, are you listing on the platform and then investing in the tokens? He choked on that question. I think that's something you got to be prepared to answer, uh, especially during this time. And, you know, as far as this lack of clarity in the meetings he had with the SEC, the interviewer also, you know, sort of stumbled into this other question about Bitcoin. And Armstrong answered that about a year ago, the quote unquote tone of the SEC's responses to him shifted to everything except Bitcoin as a security. And so when I hear that, what do I, what do I hear? I hear that Armstrong did, in fact, have the clarity he was looking for, and Coinbase did, in fact, know that Bitcoin was different than the rest of the stuff they were trafficking. Now, I, I just want to say that I'm not defending the SEC. I'm not defending Coinbase. I think everyone here comes out you know, smelling like turds, to be honest with you, Mike, if I could use mm-hmm. the French word. But uh, you know, Gensler's SEC is taking this angle that they are the sort of protector of retail investors, and this is important to protect retail investors. Uh, you know, Mike... It, is Gensler and the SEC, I don't want to say Gensler specifically because the SEC has been you know, dropping the yeah. ball for a long time, but is Gensler's SEC protecting investors when U.S. politicians, their brothers, sisters, mechanics, priests, uh, you know, the guy you stop next to at the red light, the guy you asked for a cigarette at the bar a couple nights ago, when they're all trading on insider knowledge against the public, is the SEC protecting them? The answer is no. Uh, up until the pandemic, I don't remember exactly when, but I believe Federal Reserve Chairman Powell and his colleagues at the Federal Reserve were also able to trade, even if they were trading under yep. blind trust. And I don't believe this blind trust thing. I, I find it difficult to imagine that suddenly, you know, to use a Cheech and Chong reference for your listeners, Powell and friends are doing their best Mr. Chitlin impression when it's time to decide what, whether to buy or sell based on the information they have about policy, uh, rate, rate policy, for example. Uh, companies like Nikola were allowed to go public, Mike. Famously, they used yeah. a pusher in a promotional video and had a car, you know, plugged into a separate power source when they should have been using their own battery at, an, at another uh, time. You know, we've talked about tech IPOs. I've heard you, you've talked about that over the years. Mm-hmm. GameStop saga in the last uh, few years. Robinhood, you know, giving options, naked options exposure to retail after a few click-through prompts. Um, famously, you know, on a somber note, Robinhood had to answer publicly for the suicide of a young man in the United States when those options became available to their retail clients. In terms of crypto, Mike, you know, what, when the U.S. government says they're protecting people, what they're really doing with stuff like this is pushing business overseas. Now, Coinbase, for all its flaws, unregistered securities or not, okay, Coinbase is playing ball with KYC AML laws. They're playing ball with the banking system. They're even letting chain analytics companies look into their data to try and pin down where certain funds are going, where they're coming from, where mm-hmm. certain tokens are going, where they're coming from. None of the overseas Client, you know, customers, uh, or I should say companies are doing this. Now, even worse, Mike, if I can continue rolling downhill here for just yeah. a second. In the last month or so, you know, the question has to be asked, who does the SEC like if they don't like Coinbase? Who are they giving favored treatment to if not Coinbase? Well, I have the answer for you. It's a company called Promethean who had their founder in front of Congress in the month of June. You've never heard of this company. Almost none of us had before this story started to drop a few weeks ago. The founder of a company called the Wang Shang Company, X-I-A-N-G, I believe is the uh, company. This is the, the umbrella corporation and sort of adjacent firm that did a huge buy of the token sale of this company, Promethean, back in the day. Mike, the, the founder of this Wang Shang group 
was posthumously named a National Excellent Communist Party member in 2021. Now, if that wasn't enough, and I can see that you're sitting down, I would tell you to sit down. Maybe I'll tell your listeners to sit down. The founder uh, claims that their license, this special purpose broker-dealer license that's available in the States, lets them trade securities. This actually isn't true. It won't allow you to trade layer ones the way that Coinbase was. Something like Ethereum, for example, would be a, you know, a good uh, exemplar of that. On another interesting note, when companies seek investors, Mike, they often use what's called a, um, a, a placement agent. But this isn't the case for venture. And so Promethean used a placement agent, a bank. The bank they use is called Network One Financial Securities. Mike, on the record of Network One Financial Securities, again, this is who the SEC is parading out, this company Promethean, as someone who came under their umbrella and was regulated voluntarily. On the record of the agent that these guys used during their uh, funding uh, period, 18 regulatory events, one civil events, one civil event, four arbitrations, and also, Mike, they do a ton of business in China as well, so some affiliation there. The Promethean C-suite uh, um, you know, C-suite uh, staff, they're probably not called staff, but you get the idea. Mm-hmm. They're lawyers full-time. Two of them received their legal accreditations from institutions that have since had that accreditation revoked, okay? <laughs> and during the hearing, uh, you know, in front, of, in front of U.S. Congress, there was a moment, that, almost like the Manchurian candidate. I don't know how else to describe this. This is how it's being described in the space. The, the congresswoman asking the questions of the founder is reading from a card and the founder is reading his questions also from a card. This sort of total ventriloquism moment, right? Mm-hmm. Who is really talking here and why? And so this is who the SEC is putting out there as a competent company. Now, you know me, your listeners know me, and people listen to my show know me. I don't, I don't care for any of these tokens, nor do I particularly care for Coinbase. But to say that this was a fair shake for that company, there's, there's something, uh, something a foul here between the US government, Coinbase, the SEC, and potentially also other regulators as well. Very strange all around. Well, I mean, first of all, that's a great explanation. And what keeps coming back to me is how much money uh, FTX, for example, had in the political system in the U.S. And, you know, and influenced, I think, the approach until it collapsed. I mean, where were these people? All of them. They were supporting it. They were part of it, never checking into it. And, And that list that you've just given us puts a lot more meat on that bone. And your point's very well taken. Uh, and again, though, I, I worry that, that I mean, I, I don't care whatever people do investment-wise, but I, I want to make sure they understand that that's not necessary reflection on Bitcoin, that don't confuse the two, because you, as you know, well know, I mean, this kind of sphere came into the public realm, you know, the broad public consciousness, maybe three years ago. So there's still a lot of confusion and there's been so many problems, uh, you know, led by FTX, but, uh, and again, these are the latest ones. And so I I think we have to continue to make that distinction here. Plus, well, how many, how many cryptocurrencies were there at one point, like 7,000 or something? I remember, you know, there's, there's there's been so many, Mike, and and, you're, you're correct in pointing out that there is a clear difference between Bitcoin and the others. The, the energy link through mining is very critical. And, mm. you know, there's, there's a, a saying that I will for sure get wrong, but, you know, when the attacks really start coming fast and furious on things like Bitcoin uses too much energy, yes. uh, Bitcoin is, is causing problems for the third world, Bitcoin is, you know, boiling oceans, you know, you're, you really know you're over the target there, right? This link mm-hmm. to the, the energy world and, and actual proof of work, as it's uh, referred to in the space, is critical to making sure that we don't get scams like we saw in FTX. These flywheel ecosystems where companies are basically printing up tokens to add to their valuation, then using the valuation to take loans, then using the loans to buy more tokens, then keeping the tokens on their books, et cetera, et cetera. In FTX's case, you know, as we discussed before, FTX was forcing 
uh, companies in which it was investing to hold its FTT token as part of the deal. And so you're yeah. setting an artificial price floor there, right? This is all, this is, this is all, it's not new, but it's also uh, not quite forgotten from, you know, these, oh, older, yeah. these older ICO periods, 2017, 18, this is going on for a long time. And, you know, it's funny that one of the things I hear a lot about the difference between Bitcoin and crypto, and this is, you know, specific to the recent SEC action, against uh, Coinbase and Binance, which we can get into if you like. But the thing I would say, you know, to these people who are quick to point out on Twitter that we're all in the same boat now, we have to put aside our differences and work against the SEC. You know, I'm sorry, my friends, um, the SEC is not coming for Bitcoin at the moment. They may at some point in the future, but they're very clearly not now. And, you know, Mike, you know this all too well. The sort of, um, you know, I like to call them flauntrepreneurs instead of entrepreneurs parading around in the latest Gucci and, and Louis Vuitton yep. stuff and their token takes off. I, I don't support these things. I don't think people who support Bitcoin should support them either. And, you know, it's it's yet another example of this cheap money environment that we were in for so long where the risks were abundant uh, not just in crypto, but in oh, tech yeah. and in God knows how many other domains and silos. And so we're still seeing some remnants of that, you know, a year later, two years later, even though rates have gone up basically around the world. Um, expect to see more flushing out. I think it's safe to say that Bitcoin will be fine. Like I said, we're on a couple of updates in a row here. There's only a certain amount of Bitcoin out there. There will only ever be 21 million total minted. And Bitcoiners feel safe in that. You know, we are unaffected, as we like to say. Yeah. Uh, but an important distinction. Uh, what does it mean for people, though, looking at, uh, do you just say, stay away from Coinbase right now, stay away from Binance, you know? Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to say, Mike. You know, Binance, yeah. Binance is in a whole other world of hurt, right? Gensler yeah. uh, has done a, I think, outstanding job confusing the uneducated investing public by talking about Binance publicly and, and making reference to their CEO and yep. just pe- just just peppering in a mention of Coinbase here and there, peppering in a mention of Brian Armstrong, peppering in a mention of securities uh, violations. Binance is in a, a whole different you know pot of soup. Binance is commingling funds, a la FTX. Uh, Binance has its own token, which represents, last I checked, officially. This is not you know verifiable, unfortunately, but their official number is about ninety eight percent of the CEO's uh, net worth, and probably something like that for the exchange as well. Uh, Binance also running uh, different different bucket shops trading against its own clients under the guise of market making. Yeah. This is a whole different beast, right? And they're, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul as far as the sort of porous styrofoam wall between F, uh, between um, Binance US and Binance International. And so all these things together, this is a, a different thing. I, I would recommend people stay away from Binance no matter what. That's a casino. I mean, you shouldn't yeah. expect Binance to be there when you log in the next morning. Uh, you know, expect it to be taken down or seized, get that government. What is that? That FBI seized by the uh, authorities uh, banner. Coinbase... You know, Coinbase, and I'll, I'll probably catch a little bit of ire from my listeners for this, but Coinbase to me is is fighting a fight that needs to be decided one way or the other. And I don't want the government in the United States to just be able to roll over people. They're, they're, they're so quick, Mike, to target smaller firms without, you know, swaths of lawyers, swaths of um, – securities experts, et cetera. And then what they do is they basically use that precedent to go after the monsters to say, look, well, we got these little guys and they're trying to do this with Coinbase too. Don't, don't get me wrong. We got these little guys. Now we're going to take this precedent up the chain and Coinbase to their credit is refusing to stop the staking services, refusing to stop selling some of the tokens. And I hope the battle is decided in a fair way. Again, personally, not investment advice for me as it is not from you. I, I only buy Bitcoin. That's my preferred vehicle for exposure to that whole ecosystem. And, you know, as you know, Mike, as debasement continues, 
um, you know, it's, it's just going to continue to cause problems for people who hold dollars. And actually, I heard a great joke. I'll tell you now. Uh, if uh, Justin Trudeau had, you know, two suitcases of cash, where would he keep them? He'd keep them in the basement. And that's exactly what we're seeing as Canadians, right? Every month, every year, the dollar is less and less valuable. So Bitcoin for me is a, a good way to hedge against that. And that's the rationale, you know, it's, it's to protect in that way, the purchasing power, et cetera. Let me give you another event that happened this week that was a bit of a jaw dropper for me, because of course the public's influence when big names talk about this, that, or the next thing, of course, but BlackRock's Larry Fink has been a huge critic of, of Bitcoin. I mean, forget the rest of the stuff, forget, you know, the crypto, uh, the crypto world, the Coinbase, the Binance, any of that stuff. No, he's been a huge critic of Bitcoin. So I got to tell you, when I find out that BlackRock once has filed, has filed to do an ETF on spot Bitcoin. I mean, come on. <laughs> I'm not sure. Did that surprise you? Because I didn't see that coming. It's hard to say what Fink and his, you know, colleagues, his peers and other uh, hedge funds, investment houses, et cetera, are thinking at the moment. It seems to me like there's a clear, what's the best way to describe this? There's a clear move in traditional finance to find a way to capitalize on crypto and Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And so what we've seen now is the SEC really cracked down on everything that's not Bitcoin. So if you're Larry Fink, you know, as much as Larry and I maybe wouldn't get along and I, I might not share a pint with the, with the fellow anytime soon, uh, even if I had the chance, I do appreciate that it seems to me that he's found a way to get his clients exposure to the price of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually, I like this for a couple of reasons, Mike. One, I think that if you look at the people who are buying ETFs and using investment vehicles like that, it, there's, there's like a, there's a, 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 a sort of a, a bimodal distribution, right? It's people who are inexperienced, just starting yep. investing and it's people who are, I think, you know, a little longer in the tooth, let's say, and don't want the risk or the, the hassle of picking uh, certain companies or, or certain indexes yep. or whatever. They prefer to buy the market. Okay, fine. So I, I like this because I think that second, that second point on the graph, the older folks, you know, Mike, if you're on fixed income, how are you feeling about the last year or two yeah. years, the way your dollar, you're not feeling great. And you're probably seeing a lot and hearing a lot, maybe from your grandkids, maybe from the kid who cuts your lawn, maybe from the guy at the grocery store, maybe from guys at the gym and the locker room, who knows? You're probably hearing a lot about Bitcoin now in a way that you weren't before. And so think, you know, for all his shortcomings, there's no doubt about the guy's business chops. And, and, and if, yeah. if he sees an opportunity to make money on a little bit of a fee and bring people in, He's happy to do it. And I personally think that um, this is going to be a top of the funnel moment. There'll be an opportunity here for people who wouldn't otherwise know about Bitcoin to not only get exposure to the price, but also to the ethos and maybe think about holding it in their own hardware wallet. Thinking about, think about how to, how, to, how to view economic data, how to view economic reporting. You know, why is the government telling me that uh, Ukraine is the cause of inflation when clearly it's this, et cetera, et cetera. These are uh, light bulb moments for a lot of people. And I'm excited to bring in what's typically been a pretty tough to reach demographic for the Bitcoin space. Well, and, and you know, it's obviously a tacit endorsement. Uh, people are worried about the future of, of Bitcoin, et cetera. And I just thought it was noteworthy. And I'm sure how many people had heard that uh, BlackRock had filed for this ETF. But I think it's, it is an endorsement. I think you're absolutely right. It's going to open the door for a lot more people to get involved. One, they'll trust BlackRock. 
you know, I mean, whatever, they'll certainly feel more, uh, you know, it's a brand, a big brand name. So Pesto, you're there. And I think it might be the beginning of other majors uh, getting involved. And so, I mean, obviously it's an evolving space as we continue to talk about, but it's an evolving uh, space, which is why people should listen to the Canadian Bitcoiner and uh, listen to Joey. Joey, as always, I really appreciate you finding time. Great stuff as usual. Mike, it's a pleasure. I'll be uh, heading out to Home Depot here shortly. I appreciate you giving me a uh, break, my friend. (laughs) Okay, good luck. Good luck with the house. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. You know, and for the first time, you got to forgive me, I'm going to talk about a personal situation, but not because I think my situation is important to anyone but me, but I think it's illustrative of a much bigger problem with government. So I got to give you the context. You actually don't have to follow it, but let me give it a shot, like the Coles Notes version. Quickly, as an old guy, I can defer my property taxes. Last year, there was a problem. I was not on top of it for a number of reasons. So I contacted the municipal government, and I specifically noted when I did that, talked to a very pleasant person, resolved the issue, paid my utilities, all good. I got a letter saying I didn't have to do anything else. I was automatically on this deferral. You know, but on the contrary, this year I get a notice after receiving that saying, hey, my taxes had not been deferred. And I'm going, wait a second, I was told verbally and I was told in writing. And nowhere did the letter specifically say I had to do anything else, which turns out I had to reapply. So now on to the shocking part. I actually got a second letter, by the way, confirming I was on automatic renewal. So I thought I better phone somebody and figure out what's going on. And that's the point I want to bring. Now, property deferment is a provincial matter. So I phoned the Ministry of Finance, property deferment department. I was put on hold. Well, no surprise. It's a pity time of year, but we're not done yet. I was on hold for like one, two hours. And then I decided, you know, they gave us the announcement. If you want to call back, choose that option. You don't lose your place in line. So go ahead with the callback. Okay, so I did that. You can't even hallucinate how long I've been waiting. It's over 73 hours at this moment, 73 hours on hold and waiting for a callback. I did check. I'm still in that callback line. They said, if I got in the callback, I don't lose my place in line. So are they really telling me you've got people on the phone who've waited this long? I mean, we're talking over three days here. Think about that. In what universe is that acceptable customer service? I mean, come on. I mean, you'd be right saying that despite the label public service, there's no service to me. I'm not the customer. I'm not treated like one, I mean. I'm somebody who's just at the mercy of the system. Reminds me, by the way, of the healthcare problems right now. The wait times. No family doctors. It's not the people who work there, by the way. Let me be very clear. They can be terrific, but they're limited by the system and what they do. My experience is a great illustration, though, of the difference between the public and the private sector. Well, maybe more accurately, any kind of monopoly. They just happen to be mostly in the public sector. In monopolies like government services, you've got no power. You can get bad service in the private sector, too, but you can take your business elsewhere. And the offending business suffers in terms of losing customers and revenue. No such thing here. But come on, my point is that 70, what, three hours on hold and waiting for a callback? I am irrelevant with no recourse, no appeal process, which is gu- astounding. Think about it. No appeal courses. Astounding given how many mistakes the government can make. 
But here's the thing. It reminds me the Auditor General did a report on Canada Revenue Agency in 2017. This is a beauty. They found that the agency didn't even bother to answer 64% of the calls it received from taxpayers. Didn't bother to answer. But when they did, maybe you were unlucky because 30% of the time they gave the taxpayer the wrong information. Again, no real recourse. But good luck in proving that you had a problem. And there's not even an appeal process for the property, uh, provincial property tax deferment. Simply too bad if you got wrong information, which I did on two occasions. Anyways, what an incredible experience. At some point on all of these things, you can't get a family doctor. You get put on hold for three days. You've got to say, not good enough. I've had enough. Well, I'll tell you this, I have. Well, if you're a regular listener, you certainly know that I have a big concern about the coming rental squeeze. Yes, I already appreciate that it's happening. I think it's going to get a lot worse. I think the fundamentals are easy to understand. Canada accepted 1,050,000 newcomers last year. Well, obviously, we have to live somewhere. But also, you've got the problem with student visas. When people have been here on a student visa, then they apply for permanent residency. You know, a complicated process, but the bottom line, that is not included in the number I just gave you. So again, we're looking at that, but there's obstacles to investment. There's opportunity with investment. So I asked Justin Smith, he is the president of Hawkeye Wealth. This is what they do. They're a private equity firm that develops rental apartment holdings. Justin, first of all, I appreciate you finding time for us. Great to be here. Thanks, Mike. I've just done a quick summary, summary why I think it's an opportunity. Let me just back up for a second. I want to get your opinion. Why invest, you know, for your company in the development of rental apartment buildings? Yeah, we still think it makes a lot of sense, uh, particularly in, in major Canadian markets and a few select uh, secondary markets. And you touched on a few of the points there. Another, another number that uh, is probably fresh in people's minds is that Canada just surpassed the 40 million population mark and and of course the lower mainland is one of the most desirable places to live in Canada so a lot end up settling here and, and also the world uh, you know Canada's desirable Vancouver's desirable so we'll attract our, our more than our share uh, of those newcomers and and the problem is 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 we've underbuilt new rental housing for decades uh, I think a, a couple of years ago I came on the show and and shared um, the average age from uh, of the Vancouver rental buildings was about I think it was about 62 and I, I and I really think it's we've hardly built anything new so I believe from the last Goodman report here the average age of a purpose-built uh, rental apartment in Vancouver is 64 that means it was built in 1959 so maybe a similar age to a lot of your listeners out there I'm just not sure where where everyone's gonna live and we've got a few rentals coming to market now just just not near enough and and uh it's tough it's tough because of how challenging it is to move projects forward in a timely fashion uh due to the obstacles well and again the 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 centers are are have been consistent you know people move to montreal toronto hamilton area and a broader area there uh the greater vancouver area also uh you know pick up in calgary and edmonton and uh, I'm interested in the secondary markets, too, as you say. But the main markets, uh, I think, are pretty blatant of where the need is and the opportunity, I guess, from your side. You're looking for places. Obviously, when you build apartment buildings, uh, you want tenants. And <laughs> there doesn't look like there's going to be any shortage in that. But beyond that, that's my little mi macro view. What do you look for when you're looking at a deal? 
Yeah, we're looking for we're looking for a few different things, and we we work exclusively uh, with third party developers. So we're we're the money here. We're not actually funding the developments ourselves, but our our job is to go and and de de risk it or de risk isn't right right the word. There's there's risk in development here. We're looking to mitigate it in in as many ways as we can. A uh, few key things we're looking at is a the track uh, track record and reputation of the developer. Vancouver's a small town, so you can make uh, you can make a few calls and usually get a pretty good sense of who you're do, uh, doing business with. And of course, with some of the developers we work with, their their reputation uh, precedes them, uh, hopefully in a good way. Uh, another thing is we look for developments that are as close to starting construction as possible, ideally with permits already in place. Uh, one way developments go south is when they take a lot longer uh, than anticipated to start construction. And for anybody that's ever invested in a development in the lower mainland, uh, you know, that that part of your your projected timeline is never compressed. It's almost always extended here. Uh, so particularly when you're using uh, debt to purchase the land. So uh, we we our preference is to go and and invest in developments that are as shovel ready as possible. Uh, and then we're looking for fixed price contracts uh, if possible on the construction side with a reputable construction company. Uh, and then, of course, the, the the general things we're looking for, that that the math all works, not just with what today's assumptions are, but there's a, a sufficient um, margin of safety built into those numbers. As as you know, the world rarely unfolds according to the pro forma. Uh, but you're interesting. I want to backtrack for a second. When you talk about are the permits in place, that's a much bigger issue than, again, someone who's not involved may appreciate because that, first of all, the clock's ticking financially. Let's say you've bought the land and now you're waiting for permits. Well, whatever payment you may have on the land continues to escalate. But, I mean, that's a huge problem that at least finally is in the public realm that, the delay, you know, people want more housing. You don't get affordability without more supply or more rental availability without more supply. And that permitting process is a real key. Your point's just, I just think, is a very important one that many may overlook when you think about what are you looking for. Well, you want to be through that process, as you say. Uh, you, you don't want to all of a sudden get a snag for two years. And, Correct. Uh, yeah, you know. it, it, it completely torpedoes your returns. Yeah. And, and, and can it depend on how much debt you're using as well? Because you think about it, if you know, land brought, bought in 2021, if it's taking you, you thought you were going to be in the ground in 2022, but in 2023, you're still not in the ground. You've also faced increasing interest rates and almost all these land loans are variable rate loans, right? So you, you bought, you bought them paying X rate and now you're paying yeah. Y rate. And, and that's compounded by the fact that your returns are now stretched over, uh, a, a shorter number of years, so it, it, it's it's kind of it's kind of why groups like Hawkeye exist, right? Because there's there's we still think that there are some deals worth doing right now, but we're very much in a one foot on the gas, one foot on the brakes situation right now. And investors, if they're not careful, can certainly uh, get into some trouble, particularly uh, with this element of of expanding time horizons, as you're mentioning. Yeah, it, it is interesting. Eh? Well, the need is so blatant. You know, we need more. Re- in, in this case, I know Hawkeye's looking, you know, at rental apartment buildings, but the need is blatant for that. We look at those rent numbers, uh, which I'm still astounded. Every month I look at them, I'm blown away by what yeah. rents are. And 10, so we 20 percent increases in a oh. lot of these markets or even or even more than that year over year. 
Yeah, and yet, as you say, so on a, a, a layman's level, you'd sort of go, well, this has got to be a good business. But as you're pointing out, oh, there's lots of variables to be looking at or details to look at before the business side makes sense. I, I just think that's a very important message that you're giving, you know, on that on that basis, because it's it's not as simple as saying we got all these people, they got to live somewhere. When you're talking specifically about a development, there's other criteria and they've got to meet. Correct. Correct. Yeah, you're looking yeah. at the development risk, you're looking at the construction risk, and then ultimately you're looking at the, the lease up and yeah. sale risk. And, and you have to be uh, understand the business enough to, to understand how reasonable each assumption used in the deal is. And then, like I say, apply a margin of safety to each of those assumptions uh, as, as the world. Again, I, I've never seen a... I've never seen a pro forma that ends up not being fiction. You just don't know where when you're when <laughs> yeah. you're looking at it. It's it's a very much a Great guessing point. game, and and hopefully it, you know it outperforms. But that's why that margin of safety is so key. Let, a couple things. Uh, Hawkeye is a private equity. Um, I know I'm going to ask you to do the you know I always say it the Barbara Walters one minute version. Obviously, then we're not talking about things that trade on the stock exchange. You're taking a private deal as if. 10 of your friends got together and we said we're going to develop this apartment building or get someone to develop it, pardon me. Um, what's the difference, though, beyond that? And what about liquidity on deals like this? Yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really suitable to a certain type of investor, a, a, an investor that can take the risk, right? Development isn't a, a low-risk business. You're usually going after those 20, 20-ish, even more percent returns. So there's risk, of course, involved with that. Um, and second of all, it's for investors that can afford the illiquidity of not being traded on the market, right? So when you go into a, uh, a deal, and, and again, we mentioned some of the time horizon risks around the development uh, and permitting process, you should be able to go for a number of years without without seeing this money. And ideally, you're not able to do that in just one deal, but you're able to get some diversification across a number of these types of deals um, and and are able to allocate a enough money um, to to make it worth everybody's while here. So you know if it's the the person with a, a three four five hundred thousand dollar portfolio, it's usually these usually aren't the types of deals that they go into. You're probably better off in the public markets. Uh, most of our clients are are kind of in that uh, starting in that maybe two million investment size uh, on the portfolio size to, to be able to get enough scale to do it. So uh, again, appropriate risk tolerances and, and comfortable having these investments illiquid for for a number of years. With the trade off being, I mean, you're you're obviously you're obviously going after higher returns, right? A, um, B, what you're able to achieve is some diversification. You can go and 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 pursue some niche strategies that are difficult to access in the public markets, right? If you want to go and, and invest in development in certain uh, lower mainland markets, where in the public markets are you, are you going to access that particular niche, right? So you get some diversification and, and some niche strategies that you can tailor to your own liking, uh, leading, and leading ideally to, to higher returns. Well, one of the things you're doing, and I just give people a heads up and I'll remind them later, but uh, you're doing a webinar coming up on Wednesday. It's a week, uh, you know, June 28th, you're doing a webinar. We'll let them know. But I think this is a great example of all of the intricacies that people should be aware of 
you know, and that's why you get people with expertise involved, you know, simple as that, that there is expertise. So get someone who's familiar with it. Uh, but I, I think it's a, a very interesting part of the market that you guys are focusing on. Obviously, as I said, my macro view lends to that, but all the other things around that for individuals to have a look and make sure they're aware of. So I know you'll get a chance to do that in the webinar. So I, I look forward to hearing it and, uh, or seeing it, I guess it's a webinar. Look forward to having you. Uh, Justin Smith is President Hawkeye Wealth. President Hawkeye Wealth. Uh, great stuff. More coming. I'm going to bring Rob Levy in right now to chat with me. Rob, you can find at bordergold.com. Rob, I want to talk a little bit about the broader scale, about interest rates, about cost of living, that the inflation's been more stubborn, you know, than I think central banks uh, and there's a lot of messages out of that, that they haven't quite got the inflation right. They consistently think that maybe the market's going to slow down. Now, in their defense, they say we're going to watch the data. So they haven't made anything definitive. But again, it looks like we're looking at some interest rate bumps coming up. The market's sort of suggesting that, and certainly the central bankers have. Absolutely right, Mike. It's, uh, you know, very simply, we thought we had our pause here. That was at least uh, the market interpretation for a little bit that uh, central bankers had reached their terminal rate with maybe so in Canada. But we've seen in the past couple of weeks, like the Bank of Canada, the Reserve Bank of Australia, and then even in the Fed a couple of weeks ago, they paused hiking interest rates. But it's still every indication that they're still going to be aggressively tackling inflation and just to throw one more example at you, with the Bank of England, which we saw this past week, and inflation in the UK in excess of 8%, and they surprised the market raising rates by 50 basis points. So it, it's a bit of a message that central banks, they, this isn't over yet. They are still aggressively tackling inflation, raising interest rate policy. Yeah, I think your point about, uh, you know, when the Bank of Canada was the first to sort of, in quotes, pause, I think a lot of people, as you say, interpreted that to be, okay, the rise is over. Now let's debate when they're going to drop rates. I think the shock earlier this month was when they bumped them up. And even then, if, when people are starting to sense that maybe we're going to get that, they still thought it was going to be later in July. So they bumped up. I think that's going to have a tremendous psychological effect. And, and it's sort of, we got those numbers this week uh, saying that consumer spending had sort of resumed in April and le lesser in May. But I thought that was all about people going, yeah, that interest rate nightmare is over. We know what we're dealing with. This is as high as it getting. And of course, they got the shock treatment. I, I'd be very interesting to see when the stats come out to the degree to which that bump up in June in Canada, and now all the talk of rate re uh, rises and the other ones that you've alluded to throughout the world have a big psychological effect and have people pull back again. Exactly right. And in many of the Western nations around the world, it's this idea that inflation remains sticky. So yeah, in Canada, we've reverted back down headline inflation under 5%, but central bankers still have an issue when core inflation is above 5%. And in places like the UK, European Union, in excess of 5%. So their message that they want to see inflation get back to 2% and perhaps some of the debate or the reason people thought that central banks could pause policy for a while was because of the transmission effect of higher interest rate policy and beginning to slow down consumption. Uh, but maybe the take is that it's not happening quick enough. So they're going to be a little more aggressive to send it back to 2% inflation a little quicker. I mean, here's, here's a great quote. This is from October 10th, 220. 
The Federal Reserve is determined to push inflation higher from levels it considers dangerously low. This is October 220. For that to happen, it must first convince everyone that prices will accelerate in the coming years. I mean, unfortunately, that's been a real hardship that they were that wrong about things. You know, inflation started to pick up within a few months. But it's, it's on the other side, it's laughable. You know, I mean, they have been wrong. Keep in mind, inflation was transitory, everyone, right? Right into 2021, you know, not going to be with us. And of course, they've been dead wrong. But here's the other side. They thought these rate increases that they've done would lower the rate of growth in prices, not near as much as I think they were hoping. And, and, and to me, that just says, is the Federal Reserve or the central banks idiots? No, it tells you how complex the economy is, that how many aspects to the economy there are. You know, there's different regions, different industries, all of that. And I'm only saying that because I'm so sick and tired of reading the media that the politicians are going to manage the economy or someone's going to manage this incredible complex beast that government can intervene and make a difference. So there's my little rant there, Rob, you know, but it just is a reminder how difficult it is. A hundred percent. And it's well received because even as we have an inflation problem now in the world and we think back to a pandemic a couple of years ago uh, when a lot of the story was energy prices because of the war in Ukraine and also supply chain issues and the impact on prices. Now you have much different dynamics playing out, as you said, in different regions of the world in so many places that come to mind issues with labor. Uh, whether, yeah. you know, one quick example, but the Paris Air Show this week, and it talks about Boeing and Airbus and the magnificent orders they received for airplanes because of different carriers around the world that want to increase capacity. But one challenge that they both have is do they have enough people to put these planes together? Because so many said, I can't be in an airplane manufacturer anymore through the pandemic. This isn't reliable enough. So I've gone to another industry and they have challenged getting people back into that specific area of manufacturing. I'm smiling because that's also going to be a huge issue. You know, we had, sorry, I'm digressing, you know, so, hey, what a surprise, Mike Campbell's digressing. But uh, when you think about the deal for Volkswagen in Canada, and you think about the deal for Solantis, which is still outrageous, in my opinion, because the economics don't work. I mean, not the economics, even in theory, we know it never works out. But one of the reasons is, oh, great, we're going to create jobs. No, you're not. We have a, a labor shortage. You're going to take the people from other industries because you're able to subsidize these jobs. The net gain will be zero. And I can line up economists from here to Halifax to agree with me. This is pretty fundamental stuff. But your point about the labor challenges that are still out there, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's incredibly difficult and complex. So I guess the, the point I also want to make is that people aren't worried about inflation. They're worried about the cost of living. They're worried about what am I paying for stuff? And again, just to remind, and I always do because I think much of the media doesn't remind people, inflation is just the rate of increase of the prices you're paying wherever you are. So yeah, I, I still think the story is not a lot of relief. Those inflation rates are still elevated. And your, your example of all over the world is such a good one. This is a problem central bankers are facing. They, they are. And as you said, I mean, even if we can hope or pray for maybe some level of disinflation. All we're seeing is a stabilization of the price level. It's not like we're having deflation and, and prices going down. So it's something that we're still facing. And you just look at those core numbers. Yes, things like food prices and energy oh. have been given give back a little bit or maintain yeah. at this level. Uh, but there's still core inflation is, is still sticky around the 5% level in Canada, even though we tend to focus on that headline number. 
Yeah, and just a reminder again, another point that people may overlook is that yeah, the inflation number is going to bounce down because we're going to be comparing to last year's energy prices. Or gasoline is such a good example. I know uh, out in the West Coast, they're already at $2, $205 or whatever, wherever you're filling up. But gosh, it was $242. So we'll be comparing to those numbers or, you know, sort of a broad $2 across the country at the worst. So inflation will report lower and that, yeah, I, you know, people prefer to pay less at the gas pump. But at your point about the core, other things out there, you know, we're still paying a heck of a lot. It's just not rising as fast when you come to food and other essentials. Exactly right. And as you said, this wage pressure story could be the, the key narrative to watch. Is a, You know, there was one remark about the UK today talking about how they have wage pressures unlike any other economy in the world. And that's why inflation remains so under pressure over there. But as you said, in Canada, the story is going to be no different. Manufacturing sector in the United States or Europe, it, it, it does seem to be almost the next wave of this inflation story. Well, if you care about your cost of living and else other ramifications for that, you're at the right place with Money Talks. We've got the right guy, Rob Levy, bordergold.com. Rob, thanks for the time. Nice to be with you, as always, Mike. I'm going to bring Ozzy Jurek in right now. You can find him at ozbuzz.ca. You know, Ozzy, I mean, it seems like the perception of interest rates has changed. I was talking to Rob Levy earlier about it, that, you know, people weren't expecting that bump up in June. Now we've seen the bump up in the Bank of England, which was much bigger, 50, half, a, half a percent, you know, around Australia's done it, et cetera. The interest rate environment perception looks like it may have changed. And obviously... I'm just wondering if that will be psychologically impactful on the real estate market. Well, I wrote in my last Ozbuzz uh, in the June issue that, yes, Australia has raised it, England has raised it mm -hmm. in May, 20.25%, and, and, and on this week's Thursday, by a half a percent. Then Canada on June 7, US, uh, Mr. Powell on Thursday again said there'll be two more rates at least to come this year. And Turkey raised its rate to 15%, although, of course, with 40% interest rates, um, inflation rate, people want them to go higher. So the thing is, rates are going higher, and people are still expecting the, the governments of the world to pivot downwards. And I have argued against that. Whatever is going to be, there'll be a new level at a high, and we're going to stay there because they see now that inflation is not under control. In fact, wherever you go, wages are higher, everything is higher. Now, Okay, so what does it mean for us in Canada and the mortgage rates? And one of the great sources is, of course, the Bank of Canada, but analyzing is the British Columbia Real Estate Association. They just came out with their 2023 and 2024 forecasts. And on the variable rate, which is currently 6.3%, they see the third quarter right through the end of the first quarter next year going to 695 so almost 7%. On the five-year qualifying rate, they're going... At the current rate is which is a stress test, which is currently is seven and a quarter, going to six point nine five in the first quarter next year, which is a sort of a quarter percent decline, but very small. And the average discounted rate, that's a better rate than what you see in the bank window. If we go from five twenty-four to just under five percent. So not much relief there on the rates. Yeah, but still talking about lower rates and Obviously, the Bank of Canada and the other central banks always give themselves an out because they say data dependent. So yeah. things can happen. So they're not really making firm uh, forecasts. But of course, they've been hinting very strongly that higher rates are to come. 
for longer. I think that's consistent. All the central bankers have been saying that, including ours in Canada. So it'll be interesting to see. But the other thing we have to note is that sort of uh, decline or softening of rates has been in the, you know, been in the gestalt, you know, for the third quarter, then the fourth quarter. And now, as you say, the first quarter of 2000, I mean, they've been off because, as I was talking to Rob earlier, inflation has been sticky, you know, and as you mentioned, it might be wages. Obviously, some commodity prices, you know, have rebounded now. Uh, They talk about, well, it's been a a China opening that's been much softer than I think most analysts suspected, but now they're applying stimulus. That may push some prices up. I mean, the list is a long one. It's a complicated subject, as I keep saying, but yeah, that, that to me seems optimistic that not only we get flattening of rates, that they actually think there might be a drop. That'll be interesting to see. Well, and, and if you look at the first, uh, the fourth quarter uh, rate forecast for 2024, it's about a half a percent off on where they are now at, at record highs. So it's not no, no joy, no joy in the works. And yeah. so people, people still expecting the real estate market to be hotter than a firecracker, but it's not all what it seems to be. Yeah, it seems like I can give you stats that seem they oh, it's cooling off. Oh, it's heating up, you know, that kind of thing. And it may be not a surprise when we look at a single month's activity, but there is a lot of mixed signals out there of which way we're going. Maybe that's true of the whole economy. Well, it's, for instance, in West Vancouver, the, the price range over two million, which in, in West Vancouver is almost everything, is really cooling down. We're seeing houses now not seeing a showing in three or four years, uh, three or four weeks. Uh, and the top realtor in the Fraser Valley, Brand Roberts, tells me that listings are increasing somewhat. But there's also, you know, we I said, well, how can we have multiple offers? And you're telling me there's a bit of a slowdown. Well, he says what we what realtors do is if the property is worth, let's say, a million and a half on, on the assessed role and market value, they're listed at a million three because they're looking at all the buyers that are in the marketplace and they, of course, jump on the idea of the, the low price. And then that's how you generate multiple offers. And then it will sell at a million five or a million five, a little bit over that. So the point is that's how the multiple offers are generated, but it isn't real. Yeah, uh, lots of stuff around that too. When I, I, I look at that, as if, for example, we're going to have a lot of mortgages coming due. Not all mortgages have been impacted by the higher rates. And as you've been mentioning, that can force people to stay in their homes, which would be a negative listing thing, because if I leave, I may have to renegotiate that great rate I've got, or, or you know, it, it doesn't move with me necessarily. I know there's always variations, you know, in the market. It's a complicated market, but that may be one reason that someone says, oh, I'm not selling. And then you've got other people who are selling. I mean, the list is, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting that way that different factors are impacting here. Yeah, no question. And that's, by the way, true in Canada and the United States. I mean, people that have a, a 3% 30-year mortgage in the U.S. or a 3% mortgage, in, say, for another three or four years, they really take a good hard look and say, look, I either buy less house when I move or... I have to pay a lot more and to say, no, thank you, Martha, we're going to stay in the house. But the other thing is that it is much more difficult to get financing. I met with mortgage brokers this week and they tell me, boy, you have to have your documents in. You have to have them, everything. And we always say, yeah, yeah, I will. No, no, you've got to do it before you make any offers and shop around for a mortgage broker. Not all mortgage brokers are like, not all mortgage brokers have access to all the different financial institutions. 
they'll have to be able to look at you very detailed and saying, okay, this is not a bad credit rating, but the major banks won't approve you anyways because they're very tight. So you need to have somebody that steers you. you you've talked with Kyle Green, the super guy, but there's many others there, Jared Dryan, a lot of great mortgage brokers. Make sure that your mortgage broker goes into the rate field. Uh, and then finally, you see the rates we just quoted at five and a quarter and say, well, how come I can't get it? Well, the rates offered to you might be 7% because the credit numbers are not that good or missed a payment in the past or something like that. So shopping is vital and good mortgage brokers are essential. And back to something we always talk about, but this is an environment, as you say, where it's getting more difficult to borrow. You've got to get pre-approved. You know, 100%. I mean, you know, if you're thinking of buying uh, whatever and how early should you, if let's say I have my mortgage coming due in six months, you know, just my, I had a five year, now it's coming due in six months. Should I start talking to the bank about that right now kind of thing? Uh, does that help when I have a mortgage renewal side? Oh, absolutely. The first thing, and I would go with a broker first, then usually people take what they get from the broker to the bank and the bank quite often <laughs> matches the deal. So it's good business on your own personal end. But also they might ask for something that you never realized, you know, what kind of documentation they want. And it gives you the time to do it. And most pre-approvals give you three months. There may be some in a pre-sale area that might even go longer. But the key is this, Mike, just because you have a pre-approval letter, doesn't mean you're actually going to get the mortgage for sure. We have a big meeting this week for, we are involved in a, a high rise, the Flamingo, they're having a party and they're giving a, a, a buyers a look at uh, the future dates coming through. Well, it's not coming due till 2025. Well, you can't get a mortgage pre-approved yeah. for that length of time. So you stay on top of it though, get all your documents in a row and stick with, with the rates. Yeah, it, it's, it's a very, complex and fast-moving situation uh, but what a difference it is uh, Ozzy I remember and it was such an easy call for me to make but it was March 220 and the uh, Bank of Canada came out and said we're going to guarantee basically all mortgages so lending uh, and, and we talked about it the sprig sprigates were open I said man you're going to have a real estate boom despite the pandemic because you're basically saying we're willing to lend money to everybody so that environment obviously has changed but maybe more profoundly than a lot of people on the sidelines appreciate at this point yeah and then of course the uncertainties out there I, I have the privilege of talking to some very highfalutin people and at, at the end of any discussion, after we take everything apart, the, the answer is, well, we really don't know. Right? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, even Jay Powell said this is just a temporary thing, this inflation thing. You know? Well, I've been saying this in every sort of um, talk I've given over the last few years. It's a very different environment when you have this level of manipulation from both government and central banks. I mean, yes, they've been involved before, but never to this level and this degree. And that, so really what we're deciding is what's the government going to do? What's the, what are the central banks going to do? Other fundamentals are secondary to that, whether we're talking stocks, real estate, commodities, you know, the list is a long one. So yes, on that cheerful note, but yeah, your point is so well taken, very important when you come to, if you're in the market to shop, if you've got to have a renewal, all of those dynamics will be here to chronicle as you do on ozbuzz.ca. So thanks, Ozzy. I hope you have a terrific week. Thank you, Mike, uh, and the same to you. I, I would say something. I, I'm always accused of being a little overweight, and, and some people even more unkind, saying a lot of overweight. And I, I want to make it clear that you have to grasp log logistical efficiencies. I mean, let's face it. What does a cow eat? 
hay and corn. And what are these? Vegetables. So steak is nothing more than an efficient mechanism to get vegetables to your system. You need grain? Eat chicken, Mike. <laughs> there you go. I didn't realize I've been following the Jurok diet. Ozzy, have a great week. I want to go live to the trading desk now and bring Victor Adair in. You know, Vic, I always like to start with this or at least remind people to always get their time frame clear. And maybe I say that because I've made that mistake in the past. I'll have a very clear longer term vision and I start pretending like I'm a short term trader. And I've chatted with you over the past when I make a mistake like that and you didn't stop laughing for two days. But uh, so I always like to remind people that, uh, you know, you're looking at a shorter term time frame. You're looking at the markets on an hourly momentary basis. But you know what I mean? Making your decision uh, that trade may last a day, a week, whatever, you know, and that's very different. What I was just talking with Jim and he's saying hey, short term, whatever Jim Thorne saying, look at this. I asked him for the long term view. So I want to remind people of that. Um, so let me start with the short term. I know you had mentioned to us that uh, and look at victoradare.ca mentioned that you think the market's got a bias to go down, a little too enthusiastic on the upside. So, so far you've been rewarded with that. Yeah, I think the last time we talked uh, a week ago, I said, uh, I'm not a buyer here. Yeah. You know, I've been watching the market. Uh, We certainly talked about how mega caps have driven most of this rally. I think without mega cap, the S&P is up two or 3% on the year, something like that. But, uh, you know, and I wasn't just being, let's say, a, um, a frustrated bear that, oh, gee whiz, I've missed a rally and I can't wait to hit the thing in the eye. I just thought this market has, for a number of reasons, got ahead of itself, but I'm going to wait until I see an opportunity, what I call a setup. Just because I think a market's overvalued doesn't mean I want to go and sell it. I want to see it fail a little bit before I go in. So this week I have been on the short side of the stock market, uh, but pick my spots. And my timing is very short term. If if the market gets anywhere near making new highs again, I'll be out. Um, A couple of things that are important, I think, here in the stock market. The the corporate buybacks, which are a huge part of the buying that comes into the market, they're drying up right now ahead of the quarterly reports. And I think by next end of next week or so, we'll be pretty much closed the window on corporate buybacks for at least uh, the next uh, three or four weeks. Um, we're at month end and quarter end. That means I think a lot of institutional accounts are going to look to rebalance what they have on their books, and that might lead to some selling as well. But in in real practical terms, Mike, it kind of feels like summer doldrums here. You know, we've come off the highs, but, you know, it certainly hasn't been a crash. It's come off a little bit. Volatility is down. And when prices go down and volatility goes down at the same time, that's unusual uh, for for people that are traders to go, oh, okay, that's great. One of the, the upside to that is options are cheap. Whether mm-hmm. you want to buy puts or buy calls, or they're cheaper than they were the past, you know, several months. Well, it's uh, uh, sorry. I want to come come back and reemphasize because it's not in everybody's normal vocabulary. You're not going to read it very often in the newspapers, etc. This whole idea of those two things: uh, end of month positioning and a quarter positioning. Pardon me, end a quarter. So you know that different funds want to look good. So they want to sort of make adjustments. Plus, the markets move too. So they may have percentages they want to come back and meet. You know, and then the other is that corporate buyback. I think you're making a terrific point that they're not going to hear anywhere else is that that'll dry up for right now. And so that's a, those are both 
buying pressure, or that especially is a buying pressure. And maybe there's mixed, you know, a corporate, uh, you know, when they reorganize at the end of the month. But yeah, I just think those are two important points that won't real they'll get overlooked when they can have a dynamic impact on the market on the short term. Well, another thing that we track here is what are the central banks doing? Uh, coming into July here, we have, we're expecting, the market's expecting, is pricing in that both the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve will raise rates again, as will the ECB. The Bank of England just this week raised rates by a half um, when the market was expecting them to raise a quarter. You know, uh, this is just gonna, a, a trade, and a, again, a short-term trade. The British pound just got pummeled last fall, as you remember, on the trust yes. government, a 37-year low or something. It's come rallying back. But I think the problems in the UK are so persistent. When I saw them raise, surprise the market, raise rates by a half, and the British pound initially rallied a bit and then fell off, I said, okay, that's the kind of a setup I like. Here's a market that didn't rally on what is, has been the past few months. Good news. So I'm, I'm short the British pound here. Yeah, interesting on both points that, as you say, when the market doesn't behave in the way would be standard wisdom that it should, it's giving you a message is what you're saying, you know, and you're willing to trade that message. But my God, the problems in the UK, I mean, look at their inflation still north of 8% after those rate increases that we've already seen. Holy smokes, you know, they're not going to unravel that anytime soon. And, and the same with the EU raising rates. But their economy is showing a lot of recessionary signs now. So this is that rock and a hard place that we've been talking about for ages. You know, do you want to raise rates to sort of they're trying to dampen demand, as uh, Jim Thorne was saying, that ain't going to work. <laughs> you know, and uh, but if they let rates go too much, you've got a lot of other problems in the economy. Well, if I'm talking my book, I'm also short the euro. Uh, people that read my blog will, will know I've been... Uh, say trading the euro from the short side for the past six weeks or so. Uh, one of the things I see here is that the biggest export market for Europe, European exporters is China. And the reopening in China just really isn't happening. They did a little stimulus this week, but it was like, what, that's all you got? Uh, and anyway, the, the euro looked weak. And then this morning, uh, the, where did we get that? Yes, Friday, I guess, morning, we had uh, the PMIs painting a picture of the European economy just being soft. I think vis-a-vis -vis the United States, uh, I, I want to be a buyer of the U.S. dollar and a seller of the euro. Yeah, and that's, you know what, the whole thing over the last week or so, or, and more than that, but has reminded me of to question everything I think, especially the more certain I think something's going to happen, the more aggressive I should question my assumptions. And I'm just saying, I felt that uh, within this marketplace, and of course, that's why you have risk management on, you know, that's why you properly apportion whatever you're doing with your investment portfolio. I just wanted to share uh, with the audience, that's exactly where I've been coming from, is going, what, because you reminded me when you said China. I think the consensus was China's going to come out of the gate much stronger than it did, because North America certainly did saw an increase in demand, you know, a sharp increase in demand. So we thought, okay, well, oil prices are going to go up further than they have and other commodities are going to get a boost from China. It hasn't manifested. And uh, I just think it's important. It's the opposite of politics where, where the politician says something, never questions it, no matter how wrong they get. No, this is a market where you pay a price for being wrong. And it's always good advice to, you know, aggressively question what your assumptions are. Yeah, I mean, when I put a trade on, I am absolutely prepared. I'm going to lose money. Yeah. 
And uh, I can't imagine trading any other way because uh, I just know that uh, I'm wrong a lot. And I don't mind being wrong a lot. I mean, if I don't put on any trades, what what they used to say, hey, you can't win the lottery if you don't buy a ticket. Well, yeah. you know, it's kind of like that. I can't, I can't make any money if I don't put a trade on. And, you know, about half of them are going to lose money. So I have to keep those losses small so that when I eventually do have a winner, you know, I, I end up with a positive P&L. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's why people should go to victoradare.ca. Check out the charts. Check out what Victor's thinking. It's a great way to flesh it all out. Victor, thanks very much. Uh, terrific job. I hope you have a fabulous week. And don't listen to the goofy. It's too depressing. No, it's too. <laughs> actually, it's not depressing. It's irritating. It's irritating. irritating. I promise a good irritation when I tell you where your tax dollars have been going. That's the oh, goofy. Go oh, to victordare.ca. I am definitely not listening to that. That's way too scary. Time now for the Goofy Award. Yeah, I better start by saying I obviously have a strong philosophical disagreement with a lot of politicians and government. I mean, it's straightforward. I kind of feel like I've worked hard for the money I earn. I've saved. I've made choices, including to educate myself in financial matters. And I do, though, have a legal obligation to pay taxes. With the three levels of government, my goodness, taking over half of my income in some form of tax or transfer, I mean, you're familiar with the list, property taxes. Come on, half the price of a case of beer is tax, about a third of the price of a liter of gasoline. But of course, income tax, GST, and other than Alberta, you've got to pay PST. You've got carbon taxes that Canadians have yet to see the promised rebates. Hey, in BC, there's basically no rebate at all for about 80% of the public. We pay tariffs, which raises the cost of imports. We got transit levies. You get the idea. But I do have an obligation to pay taxes. But I believe the government has an obligation to spend the money as efficiently and effectively as possible. Obviously, politicians disagree. At least it's not even close to a priority. That's why successive Auditor General's reports chronicle a relentless stream of waste and misspending. Now, sometimes the numbers are just too big to comprehend, so people don't really get upset about it. Like the billions wasted on the Phoenix pay system, Auditor General Michael Ferguson said the mismanagement was incomprehensible. And we don't want to look into that COVID spending, enough to say we didn't even care about fraud. But we know things like CERB was supposed to cost about $24 billion, ended up costing $82 billion. Why? 8.9 billion CERB checks were sent out. Hey, one problem. That was six times more than the actual number of pandemic-related unemployed. But, you know, I think what sort of gets to people, certainly irks me, is when politicians or government take our tax dollars and spend it very differently than they would their own. I think that's why a lot of Canadians got upset when they got told that the prime minister stayed in a $6,000 a night suite in London for the Queen's funeral. Come on, really? A $3,000 per night wouldn't do it? Or the governor general, my goodness, going to be the poster child for this, spent 801418 tax dollars, took 32 guests to a four-day Frankfurt book fair, staying in five-star hotel, including the Ritz-Carlton in Berlin, and that's not the first time. I mean, the governor general's trip to Dubai, she took 45 people along for the ride. It cost taxpayers 1307000 but they spent over 80000 in food costs on the flights alone, not including beverages. Come on, that worked out to $218 per meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
Have you ever had a $218 breakfast? And that didn't include drinks? Sadly, I got a lot more examples, and I know me, I can go on and on. But that sure gives a heck of a lot of ammunition to those accusing the government of being elitist. So let me get to this week's Goofy. Thanks to the great work done by Blacklock's reporter. Simply put, let me ask, when you paid your taxes, did you think 139,114 tax dollars were to go to allow Canadian diplomats to buy circus tickets? That's right, circus tickets, concerts and galas, because that's what happened over the last three years. You have to work overtime to say Canadian taxpayers benefited when something like the ambassador to Serbia spent $895 to attend the Brian Adams concert, or you got the diplomats in Bangkok spending $475 to go to a block party. The point, though, to understand is that there is a ton of useless discretionary spending federally, and no one seems to care. And it's up to us taxpayers, by the way. But I got someone agreeing with me. Finance Minister Christia Freeland in the last budget said she would it would be painless, key word, painless to cut $14 billion in travel and other perks. $14 billion. So keep in mind, that's not just me saying that money is wasted. It's the Auditor General, yeah, agrees with me, Parliamentary Budget Office, yeah, and now the Finance Minister. The question is, what do you think? What do you say? Maybe you don't work hard for your money or have so much it's no big deal when the government wastes a bit or more than a bit or you don't have anything better to do with your money. At what point do we make it a priority and say, you know what, enough is enough. Clearly, we haven't reached that point yet, but I certainly have personally. That's all the time we have this week. Hey, look, I just want to remind you, go to Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook or Money Talks Tweets. And again, the reason is this. I get a chance to update so many of the things that we talk about that I know are the trends that are going to impact you specifically. Key points. You can also go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, click on the free uh, e-newsletter, because again, we get to update you on certain items. But if you want to stay informed, I can't encourage you enough to go to those social uh, media platforms or mikesmoneytalks.ca. I can tell you, every week I post dozens of things that I know are important, to bring to your attention. You can decide what you want to do with it, but they're not getting them in the mainstream media. So take advantage of it. It's like I'm working for you for free. In the meantime, I hope you go out and have an absolutely terrific week.